May the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Please be seated. I think it most unfair to leave my chaplain standing for my sermon, because neither he nor you know how long it is going to be today. <laughs> nor do I. <clears throat> it's a, it's, it is a joy to be back for yet another ordination. And I point out to those who think there's been a multiplicity of them here, uh, that each one has been done after much uh, introspection, much uh, prayer, uh, and uh, the determination that not only is this person ready to be ordained, uh, but that the uh, congregation supports that call as well, and that there is a place of active service for them after the ordination has taken place. All of these are such requirements. And so I have watched for the last several years. Uh, Susie went through the various stages of this. At all times, we were treated to the benefit of her smile, which I hope she'll continue to be able to use throughout her ordained ministry, because that in itself is such a reassuring quality to some people who think that in order to be able to uh, follow the Lord Jesus, you must go around with a straight face all the time and uh, not be given to, to to laughter. All of these admonitions you heard read there, what a deacon mustn't be, uh, we must point out that amongst all things, the deacon, a follower of our Lord Jesus Christ, must reflect Jesus. People must be able to see Jesus, in this case, in her. And as they do, realize that he came and as he lived among us, uh, did most of the uh, good things that we do, and attended weddings and other times of, of, of laughter and frivolity, and at the same time uh, still stood for something that's very important. And so, having been with Susie this past year at her discernment weekend, when people who had never seen her before uh, had to uh, determine what they thought God's will for her was, it was such a joy to see that their decision came unanimously, not just unanimously, but enthusiastically. And if I want to identify any word with Susie apart from godliness, it must be enthusiasm, because her enthusiasm overfloweth. And as it overfloweth, it becomes infectious to all of us as well, and makes us, I hope, uh, gather the same sort of enthusiasm. In the wisdom of the church, the church often is wise, in spite of what some of our critics say, it's determined that ordinations are so important that they will only take place on a Sunday or on a holy day. And if the holy day is sufficiently important, that it would be either just, it could be either just before or after within the octave, as we say. And so, when this date fell our way and was determined after some deliberation, we knew that Susie had a choice. She could pick the Feast of the Holy Cross, which was last Tuesday, or the Feast of St. Matthew, which is next Tuesday, the 21st September. And uh, the choice was made that it would be Holy Cross, and I think that is 
particularly significant because it is in following the way of the cross that we follow Jesus. The uh, feasts surrounding the Holy Cross, the one I think is called the, the invention of the Holy Cross, that really meant the discovery of it when St. Helena, the mother of Constantine, searched the world and eventually found it, or what was supposed to have been the actual cross on which uh, Christ died. But uh, we tend to keep the date in September more as the uh, exaltation, the glory of the Holy Cross, because whether the wood that Helena found was the actual thing or not is really not important in the long run. The important thing is that it was the cross through which this world was saved. And so uh, within the church, and I'm glad to see that uh, you do do it here at Holy Trinity, from time to time in the year you have the service called the way of the cross. When you follow the stations, as we call them, the various steps, most of them biblical, uh, that Christ went through from the time of his trial and, and uh, uh, judgment to the time that he is actually nailed to it uh, on the top of the hill and his body then taken down. Those of you who have made pilgrimages to the Holy Land may indeed have had the, the honor and the, the, the immense humbling joy of being able to carry a cross along the route that Jesus walked and to stop at each of the places where various things happened to him. It was my privilege to do this a couple of years ago, and I found it incredibly moving to know that possibly even on some of these same stones, Jesus tugged his cross along behind him, not in the comfort and the glory that we were doing it, but knowing it was on his way to, to his death, to his crucifixion, and the various uh, things that, that occurred there, which all became points of interest for our salvation. One of the points is when he falls for the third time under the weight of the cross. And we're led to believe that it wasn't just the wooden cross he was carrying. Upon his shoulders he was also carrying the weight of the sins of the whole world the sins that had been committed, that were being committed, and would be committed, including ours. These were all part of that weight that he was bearing to his crucifixion. And the third time, greatly weakened uh, through the long process that led up to it, when he collapsed, the soldiers realized that if they didn't do something, Jesus would never make it to be crucified. The people who were coming out to see this gory sight would be disappointed. They wouldn't see it actually happening. And so they decided that it was necessary in order for Jesus to get to the top of the hill alive that someone else would carry the cross. And we are aware, as Scripture tells us, uh, they took out of the crowd Simon of Cyrene. And him, Scripture tells us, him they compelled to bear the cross. Much has been written about Simon of Cyrene, though very little is known about him, except he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. But because so little is known about Alexander and Rufus, that doesn't give us much of a clue either. But apparently, uh, you know, a stranger who was just there to watch what was happening suddenly becomes part of it. And he gets the opportunity 
I guess at the beginning he didn't think it any great glory at all. Why me? Why do I have to carry this cross? And yet he does, and he allows the other aspects of our redemption to take place. There's a real parable in this for us, a real strong symbolism, because from time to time, each one of us here is called upon to carry a cross. And sometimes people are called actually to take up carrying the cross as their life's profession, as in the case of the ordained uh, people in this church today. Susie heard this call, picking her from the crowd to assist in carrying the cross of Jesus here in this particular parish, in this particular area, even though keep in mind that today she is being set apart and ordained as a deacon in the church of God. No limits, no boundaries. Wherever it is necessary for her to be called, where she, we pray that she'll always respond to that call and will be able to uh, not just bear the cross, but to rejoice in bearing it. You see, today it seems to me that whenever anything goes wrong with us, we'll say, oh my, you know, that's one of the crosses I got to bear. We often use a phrase, something like that. Oh, he got his cross to bear, poor fellow. Look, he has, he just lost his job or this happened or something else happened. And we look upon the cross to bear as a dreadful thing. And if, if, if any way we can get out from underneath it, that's what we should try to do. But the way of the cross, looking at it as it is meant to be, is that it is a privilege for us to be selected, not just the ordained, but all of us, to be selected to be able to share in Christ's suffering, because in so doing, we will also share in his glory and in his triumph, which comes at the end of it. And so in a ministry, which is basically the role of a deacon, and all of you are deacons, by the way, never forget that, not just those who are wearing your your stole as a deacon, but those who are wearing stoles as a priest, you are still deacons. And, 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 and the same thing applies to bishops. The role of a deacon is that of being a servant. And I was telling Susan yesterday that the former Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, when he was asked of all the titles he had been given, which one he uh, thought was the most important, the most meaningful of all these titles. You know, you can't get much higher in the church than Lord Archbishop of Canterbury to start with, but then he has ten, ten other different titles after that. And he surprised those who asked him by saying, my most precious title, which is in the list of these titles, is being the slave of the slaves of God. Everyone who's baptized is a slave of God. Those of us who are ordained are called to be their slaves, which is in some ways humiliating, but in its own humiliation allows us to take part in another real way in the whole process by which the world is saved. And so the deacon's main role is not here in church, though she will be used here in church extensively. The deacon's main role is outside the doors of the church building, out into the marketplace, out into the world, bringing the message from the church out into a world where many of them know nothing about that message at all, and taking the concerns of the world back into the church, because many in the church 
are terribly ignorant of, or even worse, oblivious to, things that are happening out there. Only today someone told me that they had been at the St. Michael's Conference, where young people from all walks of life coming together for this, what apparently is an incredible experience. And it's only when they were moving amongst these young people that they realized just how incredible the temptations are that uh, that they're living in today. Uh, probably far greater than what people of my generation ever imagined they could be, mainly because 40, 50, 60 years ago, what the church said was sin, the world also said was sin. But today, what the church says is sin, the world is saying, oh no, this is normal. This is okay for all of us. We should all be living this way. We should all do what we want to do when we feel like it. And so, for a young person, or any person, to stand up to the world and say, no, you're wrong. What's a sin for me is a sin for the world. And to be able not to be defeated from the very beginning, but to go out and say, if I only influence a person here or a person there, influence people I don't even know I'm affecting by the way I'm living, by the way I'm reflecting Jesus Christ, then my ministry will be accomplishing something. And Susie, it may not be much you'll be able to measure, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis uh, looking at your ministry, but it is something which is being recognized and which people slowly but surely are finding to be an answer to what they feel is an insurmountable problem. The money that's spent today in the searching for happiness in our North American society, both sides of the border, is incredible in amount. And the sad part about it is that it rarely, if ever, finds what it's looking for. Because it's looking for a peace, it is looking for a comfort, it's looking for a purpose in life that has no price tag on it. It's freely given for them to hear about and to freely receive. When I'm ordaining a priest, taking part in a priest's ordination, one of the things which frightens me very much is the reflection on Ezekiel chapter 33, where the cleric is compared to a watchman. And they make it quite plain and quite blunt, Ezekiel does. God says to him, look, you're a watchman. If the watchman sees the enemy coming and warns the people about it and says, you better do something because the enemy is coming, and if the people don't listen to the watchman, at least the watchman has done his or her duty. They've done the warnings. They've proclaimed the word of God. They say, what you're doing is the wrong thing. You must do differently. That's fair enough. But then Ezekiel goes on further to proclaim the word of God in saying, and if the watchman sees the enemy coming and does not warn the people, who says, peace, peace, when there is no peace, if the enemy, uh, uh, if, if, if the watchman is negligent in warning anyone under his care of what the consequences may be, then the guilt will be on the watchman and not on the people. 
And I suggest to you that that applies not just to the priests, it applies to the deacons, and it applies to all of you who have been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. These people out there, you're responsible for. And it can't stop by saying, we came here today, and we had a beautiful service, it's a lovely time, we had a lovely new deacon, and now uh, what are we doing later on this evening? Or whatever of that nature. The, the thing is that one of the greatest threats to our church today is apathy. Of simply being indifferent about it and saying, well, it doesn't make much difference in the long run because uh, what will be will be, which is a very defeatist approach. There's an old hymn which says, Must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for me. Today, Susie Kenyon is accepting her cross in an even more formal manner. It's a cross that will bring her many tears, a cross that will bring her much heartache, but it's also a cross that will bring incredible joy, both in carrying out that ministry and in knowing that unworthy as you may feel yourself to be, and I'm sure you do, uh, for such a calling, unworthy as you may think you are, God has looked on you and he's seen something that's very precious and that he wants to use in his ministry, in his church, in this particular way. Dear friend, you have the prayers and the support of this congregation and all of your loved ones, even who could not be here today, as you undertake this role. And may the Lord preserve your going out and your coming in from this day forward and forevermore. Amen. Amen.